Now, I want to do something totally different right now because it is also Veterans Weekend, and I know we have many vets in our church, and we want to make sure and thank them for their service of our country. If you've ever served in the military, or are you currently serving in our military in any branch? Would you stand so we can thank you? Amen. I'm always in awe of people who serve our country in that way. My, I, I've never served in the military. My dad uh, was drafted and, and served in Vietnam. I have one of my two granddads, grandfathers, who uh, was in the Navy at the tail end of World War II and, and served in the Philippines. And, and so I, I just have this profound respect for that kind of sacrifice. Uh, and maybe because of them also, I have this love for military history and war stories. If, if there's a, a war movie on TV, you can bet I'm going to want to watch it and see how it is. And I, I think a lot of you are the same way. Um, but one, things I've, one of the things I've learned from talking to people who've actually been in combat, they'll tell you, it's not like in the movies. It's not like in the books. It's, 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 a, it's a terrible thing. War, although I, I, I highly respect people who fight and, and that's necessary at times, war is the, the kind of thing that when we get to the new earth, when Jesus is king forever, we'll thank God that we never have to fight again. It is sometimes a necessary evil, but it is always evil. And it does things to the people, even the people who survive unscathed, like, thank God, my family members there is, there is an emotional damage that comes when you're separated from your family, when you're under extreme stress, when you, when you go through the extreme stress of taking another human life, even if it's necessary to take that life, it's still, it still, it, it takes away a part of you that can't be replaced. Back in the Civil, Civil War, we called it battle fatigue. In, in World War I, we called it shell shock. Today, we have a term for it called post-traumatic stress disorder, which sounds a lot more clinical, but uh, it's the same thing. It's, it's this idea that there's an emotional damage. There's a, there's a soul wound that happens when you go through this. And the Bible never explicitly talks about it, but there's a, there's a very telling sentence in a verse I'm about to read to you. Because remember, Joshua is about a war. It's, it's about the conquest of the Holy Land. God sent his people to claim their place in the promised land, but in order to claim that place, they had to fight. They had to fight. And I want to read you this, this short passage, and it's going to get us kicked off. Verse 16 of chapter 11 of Joshua. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and, all, and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of, of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. Basically, he's saying from the very north to the very south, they conquered the land. And he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Now, here's the sentence I want you to look at. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. I told you when we kicked off this series that I loved the book of Joshua because when I was a little boy, I loved those stories. When my mom was teaching me Bible stories at night, I loved those stories about warfare and fighting because little boys are savage creatures and I just thought that was cool. But as I grew up, I started to realize, you know, there's a, there's a problem with that as Christians. How do we square that with what we read about God in the scriptures? And we'll talk about that in just a moment, but, but think also about the fact that even though those Israelite soldiers knew they were destined to win, 
Last week, Alan told you about the one time they didn't win in the campaign to conquer the Holy Land. That's because one of the members of their group had, had, had broken the law, had broken God's commands, and they paid the price. But they, even though they won every battle but one, even though they knew they were destined to conquer the Holy Land, that doesn't mean that people didn't die. That doesn't mean that some of the Israelites didn't die in the battle. It doesn't mean that every Israelite who survived, some of them were physically wounded. All of them experienced the trauma of taking human lives. I guarantee you, the Bible doesn't say this, but I think that sentence, Joshua fought, made war a long time, is an indication that it was a hard slog. It was a long journey. And there were plenty of times, I guarantee you, when every Israelite man thought to himself, when is this going to end? When are we going to be done with this? Every time they approached a new city, they thought to himself, oh Lord, I pray that all of them would just flee and we wouldn't have to fight. Meanwhile, they've got, they've got wives, they've got kids, they've got elderly parents back home. And when I say back home, there was no back home then. Imagine, we don't, when we fight wars today, we don't take our wives and kids and parents with us to live in tents on the battle lines, but that was what was happening to Israel. And so those people who were behind the lines, who were, who were, on the, who were in that territory but not fighting, they had the stress of knowing, hey, what if we lose? What if dad dies? What if... What if somebody attacks us while he's gone? It was a hard, hard period of time, and it went on for years. Now, our charge as Christians is different. We're not called as Christians to take up arms and fight against an enemy. In fact, in fact, Ephesians makes it clear, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Sad to say, lots of times we as Christians act like our enemy is the people who vote differently than us, or our enemy is people of other faiths, or our enemy is people who are atheists and don't, don't agree or don't want us to have religious liberty. And, and all those things are true, but none of those people are our enemy. They're people God loves. And so nothing that I say today should be taken as, oh, we're fighting against those people. No, our fight is not against flesh and blood, as it says in Ephesians. Our fight is against the spiritual forces of darkness. There are unseen forces of evil in our world. Our fight is to stand strong for the kingdom of God in a world that thinks that our faith is ridiculous. Our, our fight is to hold on to the, to the ancient doctrines of the word of God, even though other people think that's foolish. Our fight is to grow to be like Jesus when it's easier to just stop and say, I'm good enough as I am. Our fight is to become people who actually love our enemies people who are compassionate, people who are humble, people who constantly, constantly, constantly grow in Christ and never stop. And so we just got off of a few weeks ago, a series that I called Grit about all the times. And, and hopefully you got the indication throughout the scriptures that we're, we, we, we need endurance. We need perseverance. We need to keep on going. There's just a couple of scriptures just to remind you. John 16, 33, Jesus last night of his life says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I can, I can promise you nobody here has that first half of that verse on a coffee mug, right? In this world you will have tribulation. That's not my favorite promise in the scriptures, but it's a promise. Galatians 6, 9 is one of those encouraging verses unless you think about the implication. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Why would Paul say that? It's obvious that he knew that we would be tempted to give up because life gets hard. And we want to say, I've done enough. We want to say, I've grown far enough. I'm good enough as I am. We want to quit. 
So part of this message today, the main part of this message is, how do I stay in the fight? How do I not give up? Or if I have given up, if I have drifted, how do I get back? But first, I need to deal with something. There's a second question that I'm going to deal with first, because this is something that I promised at the beginning of this series that I would talk about. And that is, how could God command his people to kill? How could God tell his people, you go into that country full of people who've never done a thing to you, who are not threatening you in any way, who are just living in their land as they have for generations, and go out and wipe them out. Just wipe them out. Whole villages, whole towns. How could God command that? There's a book uh, that I want to recommend to you if, if you're not satisfied with what I say today, or if you want to explore it further. It's called The Destruction of the Canaanites by Charlie Trim. It's a very, very short book. You can read it in less than an hour. It presents very, very uh, succinctly four different uh, schools of thought on this question. And I recommend it to you because it does it biblically and then it lets you make the decision. But let me tell you how I deal with this question and with many other questions. It starts with a story. I'm a preacher, so everything has a story, right? So I want you to imagine you're a little kid, four or five years old, and you're playing in your front yard or on your front porch and you see this dog coming towards you, and then you see your dad on the front porch with a rifle, and your dad shoots the dog and kills the dog, and that's incredibly traumatic for you because you don't understand, and it's violent, and it's, it's heartbreaking. Now, you know your dad. You know that your dad loves you. You know that your dad, you've never seen him do an unkind thing in his life until that moment, and so you're confused, but you think, well, dad must have had a reason. And as you grow up, you never mention it to your father, but as you grow up, you love your dad more and more, and you see that he's kind and gentle to animals and people alike, and he's the best man you know, and so that, that memory sticks in your mind, but you think, I'm just going to trust that dad had a reason. And someday, one year, when you're an adult, say in your mid-30s or your early 40s, and you're visiting your parents, and you just decide, hey, dad, remember that time? And you bring it up, and your dad says, of course I remember. Of course I remember. That was... There was a little boy down the road that got bit by that dog. It was rabid and it was foaming at the mouth and, and they had called ahead and said, watch out for this dog. It bit my kid. And, and so I went out there to take that dog out before it hurt anybody else, including you. And you say, well, dad, I've been bothered by this all these years. Why didn't you explain it to me? He says, well, I tried, but you were just this four-year-old kid. And all you knew was this cute yellow doggy came into your yard and you wanted to play with it and your dad shot it and you couldn't understand. You didn't know what rabies was and couldn't understand why I would do such a thing. He said, I, you just had to trust me. See, that's where we are with God. The first step, whenever we see something in the scriptures or something that happens in our lives or something in the world that we don't understand, that we can't reconcile with what we see of God, our first step is always to say, I just need to believe that God knows things that I don't, that he's privy to information that I am not aware of. See, there's a command that's not in the Bible that I want you to memorize because it's important, and that, that command is this, there is a God and it's not you. See, we go to the scriptures and we see all kinds of things that bother us. A worldwide flood that kills everybody but one family fire falling from heaven and consuming whole armies of people, the earth opening up and swallowing families. I mean, it's, it's hard to reconcile that stuff. It's scary stuff. And it's not just the Old Testament either. There's a story in Acts chapter five. I don't know if you're aware of this, of these two church members, Christian people, Ananias and Sapphira. And all they did was lie about how much they gave an offering and God struck them down right there in the church. Now that'll wake you up, right? Unless you're Ananias and Sapphira when it'll do the opposite, right? Uh, but 
Let's not forget also that history, according to Scripture, ends with Jesus of Nazareth invading this world on a white horse with a sword in his hand, killing whole armies. And yet you read the Scriptures. You see that God is patient and gentle and slow to anger and loving and compassionate. You read the story about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you want to know who God is, read the Gospels and you'll see that he loves the least of, the, of these, that he never, ever fails to forgive someone who asks forgiveness, who, who never, ever help, uh, fails to help someone who needs help, that he's kind and he's humble and he's gentle. He won't even bruise, uh, he won't even break a damaged reed. And it's hard to reconcile those stories of judgment and violence with what we hear about Jesus unless we stop and say he must have his reasons. Like the little kid in my story, I know who he is. And he wouldn't do this if there wasn't a good reason. He actually gives us the reason in Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 5. He says to Moses, or Moses says to the people, the people of this land are dying for their own wickedness. Biblical archaeology actually bears this out. Archaeologists, modern archaeologists over the last 100, 150 years have uncovered cities in the land, present land of Israel, cities that were inhabited by the Canaanites. And you see that this was an incredibly wicked culture with widespread, rampant child sacrifice, ritual prostitution, just detestable practices. So in many ways, the Canaanites were the rabid dog that needed to be put down for the protection of the people of God. And God was even more merciful than the dad in my story because he actually, according to Exodus 23, he told Moses, I'm going to send the hornet ahead of you. Which doesn't, I don't think, mean physical, actual, literal hornets and flying insects. I think it's a, a, a metaphorical way of saying the people there are going to, be, going to hear about you before you ever get there. They're going to be terrified and many of them will leave. And we see that in the story of Rahab three weeks ago. How some of them converted to belief in God and others of them just ran. And so Mo, uh, Joshua and his, his army didn't have to fight every single person in the land. God did what was right, even though it's hard for us to understand. And even saying that, I know there's a couple of questions that, that we still have. Like, for instance, uh, people will say, but how about those people, those Christians and, and others who, who've used these stories to justify abominable actions? Like, for instance, just for a couple of examples, uh, when some of the early English settlers came to this country in Virginia, they justified their treatment of the Native Americans, which was horrific, by saying, well, they're the Canaanites and we're the good guys. Or even today, and I just got back from Israel and I'm very pro-state of Israel, and yet, uh, you know, even our Israeli God will tell us it's, it's complicated over there. And there are people on the far right of Israeli politics who say, you know, all these Palestinians, they, they're just like the Canaanites of old. They need to be driven out. They need to be deported. And if they won't leave, they need to be killed. That's pure evil. I'll just tell you. Because, because the thing is, God loves Palestinians just like he loves Israelis, just like he loves Americans. And, and, and so we need to recognize that these stories in Joshua, that's a one-time command for a specific people group in a specific place in a specific time. And anybody who uses the Bible, this part or any other part to say, well, because of this verse of scripture, those people over there have no rights. They're not speaking for God and they will face judgment. And we as Christians need to be able to call those people out and say, they don't represent the Lord and they don't represent us. But there's another problem 
Even with the explanation I gave, which I believe with all my heart, people will say, yeah, but what about the kids? Because I've had this conversation with Christians who've said, yeah, but, but why did kids have to die? And there are some Christians who say, well, I don't think any kids died in Canaan. I think, I think once the people heard that all the moms and the, and the children all fled and it was just fighting men and women like Rahab who served them. And that's a great explanation. And I'd love to believe it. The problem is there's nothing in the Bible that indicates that happened. So, so we have to answer the question, well, how could God command the slaughter of children? Because it's very likely there were some who died. And all I can say is, Here's what I know. I don't know the answer to that question. Here's what I do know. I know the cross. What do I know about the cross? I know at the cross we see that God hates sin and he loves people enough to die for them. I know because of the cross that God's love is boundless and endless and that he loved those Canaanites just as much as he loved the Israelites and just as much as he loved you and me. And, and I believe because of that, that what he did was for their good too. And that any innocent Canaanite child who died if any did, they were immediately with the Father. That's what I believe. And if I'm wrong, when I get to heaven, what I don't know will be filled in with the knowledge that I get from my Father because then I will be old enough to understand. And when I hear the story, like the story I told you about the little kid and the dog, I think I will say, okay, now I get it, Dad. Thank you. Now it makes sense. Because of the cross, I trust, I believe that nothing God does is unjust are cruel. It's always for the right. And that's where we have to start. That's where we have to deal with this. Now, back to the first question. When you're discouraged, how do you stay in the fight? When you want to quit, how do you keep on fighting for good? Some of you are serving in volunteer missions, ministries in this church or somewhere else, and you're in hard soil and you're not seeing any fruit and you're wondering if you're doing any good. Some of you may be the only Christian you know in your workplace or in your school campus, or you may feel like you're all alone and, and you're praying, but nobody's coming to Christ and you're inviting folks to church, but nobody comes. How do you keep, keep from stopping doing what you know you should do? Some of you are raising kids, and I'll tell you, uh, raising my two kids, Carrie and I would say that's the greatest privilege we've ever had. It's also the hardest job we've ever had, even though both of our kids are great. And every kid, I mean almost every kid, gets to a point in life where they roll their eyes at you. And that's, that's hard to take, man, when you love your kids and you start to think, they don't believe anything I'm saying anymore. I used to be their hero. I used to be the smartest person they knew. Now they don't listen to anything I say. What happens if they just reject me completely and walk away from everything I've tried to teach them? That is a real fear that some of you are dealing with right now. Some of you are, are public school teachers, and, and I know we've got a lot of ki- teachers in this church, and I'm, I'm grateful for them because in many ways, they're doing modern-day mission work on this, uh, on this nation, on this, uh, on this land, and, and, and it's hard work because you've got kids that don't want to learn, you've got parents that, that think their kids can do no wrong, and you've got, you, maybe you've got an administrator that doesn't back you up, and, and meanwhile, you're discouraged because you can't even talk about your faith. How do you keep from giving up when right now our nation needs more good teachers than ever? And some of you are caregivers and you've got someone in your family and, and you're, you feel like you're the, all, you're the only one. You're the only kid in the family that's taking care of mom or dad. You're the, you're the husband or wife that's, that's doing her best to, to show love to this one that has always been there for you and now can't be. And it's so hard. 
I know because it's happening in my own extended family and I've seen it in the past. It is a very lonely place to be. Meanwhile, if you're the person being cared for, that also is incredibly challenging. Not only is your body failing you, but you feel like a burden to others and you wonder, Lord, why are you letting this, why are you letting this happen to me? Why, why don't you just take me to heaven now? I want to share with you a parable that Jesus shared in Mark chapter 4, Mark 4, 26 through 29. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. I want you to raise your hand if you've ever farmed or gardened. Anybody? Anybody ever planted crops? Yeah. Yeah, this is Texas, so a lot of us grew up in the country. We've done it. Here's what you learned if you ever farmed or gardened. You know that you do a lot of work to get the ground ready, and then you do a lot of work to get the seed into the ground, and then there's this long, long period of time where nothing seems to be happening. Nothing. And then there's a period of time where stuff is happening, but there's no fruit at all. It's just a green plant. And then there's a long period of time where there's visible fruit, but you can't harvest it because it's not ready. So it's a long, long game. And if at any point in that process you say, I'm done, then you lose everything. And that's what Jesus was trying to get across to us. The kingdom of God is a long game. You don't serve the kingdom with a lack of patience, a lack of perseverance. You have to wait. And there's going to be lots of moments when you don't see God doing anything, and yet below the ground, below the surface, where you can't see, he's doing amazing things. You just have to trust you just have to keep on doing what you're called to do. Keep on pulling those weeds. Keep on fertilizing that ground. Keep on doing the work. I want to tell you about one of my favorite stories. There was a, a man named Edward Kimball back in the mid-1800s. He was just an ordinary Christian, volunteered to teach a teenage boy Sunday school class, which, okay, all due respect, teenage boys, I love you to death, but I've been one. That is a hard job. Okay, that's one of the harder, harder, uh, harder positions you can volunteer for in church. Edward Kimball decided one day, you know, I, I, all my church expects me to do is just show up with a Bible study ready to teach on Sundays, but I'm going to do more. I, I want to go visit these boys in their homes, their workplaces. So I want to get to know them better. So one day he had a little boy or a teenage boy in his, in his class named Dwight, who was a clerk at a shoe store there in Boston. And he went and visited him in the middle of a work day. And Dwight was amazed that this had happened. And in fact, that same day, Dwight accepted Christ as his Savior. And Edward Kimball must have been so excited to see, hey, finally this is bearing fruit. But he had no idea what kind of fruit he had just harvested because Dwight's last name was Moody. Anybody ever heard of Dwight Moody? Dwight Moody, if you, you, can, you can Google him or you can look him up somewhere and you'll see he's, he was the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. And one of the people who heard him preach and, and accepted Christ as a result of his ministry was a guy named Wilbur Chapman who felt led to continue in Moody's ministry. And so he went out preaching on his own. And, and in, in the course of his preaching, he, one of the people who heard him preach was a Major League Baseball player. And around the turn of the century, you got to know, Major League Baseball players weren't celebrities and, and there was nothing smooth about them. That was a rough and tumble lifestyle, hard drinking, hard living, hard cussing people. This guy's name was Billy Sunday. 
outfielder for the Chicago White Sox. He got saved and became this powerful evangelist. He used to preach to thousands without any amplification, and people were just getting saved left and right. And one of the places he preached was Charlotte, North Carolina. There's a group of, of men who went to that to that series of sermons, and they were already saved, but they were so inspired by Sunday that they said, let's get together and have a weekly prayer time and Bible study, and they both, they all just grew, and, and one of them, they met at the, the farmhouse of a particular North Carolina farmer whose last name was Graham, and you might be aware of his son. His son's name was Billy. Now, I want you to think about Edward Kimball, a hundred years before that, going out to visit this teenager and his job at a shoe store. He had no idea what he was unleashing, unleashing on the world. Because of what he did, millions, literally millions of people heard the gospel who wouldn't have heard it otherwise. I say that to say this. God can do things in your life you can't even imagine. God can touch the world in ways you can't comprehend. Oh, I, I'm not eloquent, that's okay. Oh, I'm an introvert, I'm kind of shy even better. God can use you in ways you can't comprehend. If you're the one Christian in your workplace or your school, you don't know how God is reaching people through just your simple kindness, integrity, and faithful Christian witness. Just the fact that you're not the, the one person who makes fun of that person everybody else makes fun of makes a difference. The one person who doesn't laugh at that evil joke, the one person who doesn't participate in that terrible thing has an impact. God may be fertilizing the ground through you so that someone else can come along and speak truth into their life. If you're raising teenagers right now and you're discouraged, just understand, you probably are the only one keeping them from going completely off the rails. And they, they're just at a point right now where they can't say thank you, but someday they will. Someday they will. If you're in a, a public school classroom right now and you feel beaten down and discouraged, just understand something. God makes kids aware that you're a follower of Christ, whether you get to say it out loud or not. They know. And they see the way you treat them and they see the way you love them. And you'll see the fruit of it someday. Maybe it's not going to be till heaven when you come across some of those kids you taught. But, but don't quit. You need to stay the course. You need to stay in the fight. And if you're, if you're caregiving for, for a loved one, just understand something. When your assignment in that particular, uh, uh, that particular privilege is over, you will never regret giving everything you could physically, emotionally, until you were no longer able to care for that one. You will, never freak, you will never ever regret what you did by showing love to the one who showed love to you. And if you're the one receiving care, just understand something. These bodies have expiration dates and it stinks. But we get new bodies that don't wear out, that don't age, that don't fall apart. Someday when we stand in those perfect, imperishable, spotless bodies with sharp, wonderful minds, we'll be surprised at how many people said, you know, during that period of time when you were so sick, you couldn't do anything. You brought me encouragement because you didn't give up. See, my point is this. Christian faith is not the story of a bunch of people who were just prettier and richer and more accomplished than everybody else. It's not the story of us at all, really. It's the story of a God who says, I am willing to go to the ends of the earth and beyond to rescue you, to rescue everybody who's willing to be rescued. 
Hebrews 12 says that Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. I love that sentence. Because what it tells us is when Jesus endured hell on earth, he was planting a seed that he wouldn't bear fruit from, in some cases, for thousands of years. The scriptures tell us that every time that a soul comes into the family of God, there's a party in heaven. And I believe that party is, is Jesus saying to the angels, you guys didn't get it. When I was going to earth, when I, was, when I was dying for humanity, you didn't understand. Now you see. Because this, this man, this woman, this child now has new life because of what I did all those years ago. You talk about a long game. Jesus was playing the long game when he died for our sins. He was planting seeds that he wouldn't reap the benefits from for decades, for centuries, for millennia, and yet he did it knowing that it would bear fruit. So, back to Joshua. I wish I had more time. You can read Joshua 10 for yourself. It's a great story. There's a city in ancient Israel called Gibeon in the promised land, in Canaan, I should say, because it wasn't Israel yet. Gibeon had deceived the Israelites, had pretended that they were from a distant land, and they made a treaty between the Israelites and the Gibeonites. Israel wasn't supposed to make treaties, but because they were deceived, God said, okay, I will use your naivety and your foolishness against the enemy. So here's Gibeon, and suddenly five armies surround their city, and they're like, we're going to destroy you because you made a treaty with our enemy. And Israel says, oh no, uh, these people we just made a treaty with are under attack. Now we have to defend them. So Joshua does something remarkable. He says, tell you what, guys, let's march all night. Let's do what they don't expect. Let's march all night long until we get there. So these five armies surround this city of Gibeon and they go to bed at night thinking in the morning we're going to wake up, we're going to slaughter that city, it's going to be easy as can be. They wake up in the morning with the Israelites on top of them and, and, and going through tent to tent and killing every man and, and they flee for their lives. And God says, oh no, you don't, and drops hailstones on them. And God's aim is really good. He always hits the strike zone. So he's, he's nailing Canaanites and missing Israelites. And even so, the sun is starting to go down. And Joshua says, Lord, if it gets dark, they'll get away and then they'll reform and I'll have to fight them again and I'll lose men. And so Lord, please, please, while I've got them on the run, please give me more time. And God does something he's never done before and has never done since. He makes the sun stop. He makes the earth stop spinning. So the sun stays in the sky. I've always wondered, what was it like for people on the other side of the world? who were like, uh, the alarm clock's gone off. Where's the sun? 24 hours. That day gets extended until every enemy soldier is dead. And you say, come on, Jeff. Do you really believe that happened? Absolutely. I mean, if God created a whole universe out of nothing, then a couple of meteorological anomalies are nothing. He, that's a piece of cake. See, the real issue is, think about those Israelite soldiers they were weary. They'd been fighting for years. They were ready to go home, plant gardens and, and build houses and, and be with their families. And then Joshua says, guess what, guys? We're going to march all night and fight in the morning. So they march all night. They, they fight from sunup to sundown and then 24 extra more hours. What that tells me is those guys were up for at least 72 hours and for at least 48 of those hours, they were either marching or fighting the whole time. You think you're tired right now? You don't know tired. And yet, here's what I guarantee you. 
in years to come, when those Israelites were talking to their grandkids and they thought back to that day, they didn't say, man, that was the worst day. I was so tired. They forgot how tired they were because all they could think of was, man, what God did. He did something he's never done before and will never do again. He did an amazing thing. I'm so glad I didn't quit. So that's my encouragement to you today, because I don't know what you're fighting. I know since I'm, I'm your pastor, I know some of what you're dealing with for some of you, but I can't know everything. And even the person who knows you best on this earth doesn't know everything you're struggling with, but God does. And he's saying through me today, don't quit now. If you do, you'll miss what he has planned. And what he has planned will blow your mind, because that's who he is.